Deadwood Soundlab. You know, I'll bet this is the most valuable piece here. It's Bucephalus, the magic horse of Alexander the Great. People came from all around. They wanted to see this horse that was the biggest, and the blackest, and the strongest, the most beautiful horse that ever was. Just then, a voice called out from the edge of the crowd. I said, I can ride that horse. Everybody looked around. They said, who said that? Looked over and it was a little kid, just about your size, just about your age. So Alexander walked out into the big arena, and standing in the middle of the arena was Eucephalus. He was big, and he was strong, and he was tall on the ground, and there was fire in his eyes, and there was smoke coming out of his nose. Alexander walked up, and then quick as a cat, he jumped up on his back, and he grabbed hold of that long black mane, and boom, boom, and away they went, just like lightning, and they jumped right over the crowd. I've seen another horse that defies the imagination, that runs like a demon possessed, at night, alone, at speeds beyond belief. He's never run a race, and he comes out of nowhere, but I say he could be the greatest sensation in racing history. So I here challenge the owners of both Cyclone and Sun Raider to meet this, this, Mystery horse in their upcoming match race. The reel is finished. The house lights are up. It's time to examine the Black Stallion as part of our ongoing series on child labor. This is Fields of Glory, and I'm Biggs. And I am Aaron. And Biggs, this was my second pick, the third overall in our Fields of Glory draft, and I wanted to make it my first because... It's one of my favorite movies as a kid. I saw this when I was like five or six or seven in the basement with my sister. She reminded me that we would roll out this big mat in the rec room and we would watch movies. And this is one that we watched. And we're going to get to the standpoint stuff at the end. This is a tough episode because um, we talked last uh, episode about how you can have a masterful performance with all of the wrong lessons. Yeah. And I think that's what we're getting here. And it makes me sad, but it makes me glad that I am reflecting. What's your take on the Black Stallion? You said that you saw this as a kid, too, and never since? I saw this in the movie theater when I was a kid. It was coming back to the theater. I mean, I don't remember seeing this when I was a couple months old. It was a big deal when it came out. It was a smash hit. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. But I remember my mom took me to it when we were living in Coos Bay. And I must have seen it again on video at some point. But the only thing I really remembered was the stuff on the ship and the beach. And as soon as they left the beach, I don't remember any of it. And what's really funny was, if I'm being honest, I kind of wish the movie had stopped there because everything that I really, really loved about the movie, it just became like a a farm thing after that. And I was like, "Eh." (laughs) (laughs) well, I thought the race was spectacular. (laughs) I remembered his uniform in the race. And I remembered the sugar cube on the window and a bunch of the beach stuff. All of that hit me. His dad playing poker and him divvying out the things. I mean, Hoyt Axton is a voice of a generation in so many ways. Yeah, I kept expecting to see a gremlin hanging out on the ship somewhere. And that's (laughs) why the ship crashed. Because we don't actually know. It might have been gremlins. They might have just kept following Hoyt Axton. Charles would say that would be a very different movie. But we don't know. It could have been gremlins. Dude. Totally could have. Facts. <laughs> <laughs>
was. From now on, as far as Fields of Glory is concerned, Gremlin sank that ship and it is Hoydax's fault. <laughs> he wasn't prepared for the Mogwai. And look, it's out on a ship. There's water flying everywhere <laughs> onto that ship. It's his fault. Could have made different transportation. I could put him in an airplane. I don't know. <laughs> He's probably feeding him after midnight, too. That's right. why it all happened in the nighttime. Uh-huh. We're not talking about that movie. No. <laughs> um, what, what was your uh, take this time through? It it sounds like the, the front half really lived up cinematically, and you said the farm stuff, the, the horse racing. We have a return of Mickey Rooney. Buddy, 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 Red cards, red cards. I've got too many red cards. Did not plan to put Mickey Rooney back to back. Just total, complete accident. Yeah. So weird. So amazing. I've got stuff to say about Mickey Rooney later on. I bet. But yeah. I think up top, my, my big takeaway was the entire movie is beautiful. Like, it's just yeah. shot absolutely beautiful. But I think the wordless thing really, really works in the first half of the movie. Yeah. And then it becomes this, like, farm kind of thing, whether they mean it to or not. And I just am bored by that kind of stuff. Like, I just, I don't know. I live out by farms so i don't really <laughs> particularly like it i've told you before on this show that my worst nightmare is to live out in the country like i do not uh-huh. i've lived close enough to it where i'm like never again <laughs> this was the league of their own episode where i said the willamette valley made me want to sneeze and biggs said that it made him not want to live in farm town anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i was, like their wine <laughs> yeah really listen, there's wine. a lot of great things about the willamette valley we're not knocking the willamette valley at all no but, no. Um, <laughs> no they have amazing wine for sure i would also say the race at the end was really cool and we'll get into that when we get to excitement but it was a tale of two movies for me yeah and uh i thought the first movie was super engaging and cool and the second half was not for me but that's okay (laughs) i understand it has to go to that but you know what's funny was like because i didn't remember anything after the deserted island which makes me think i probably got bored as a kid and stopped paying attention (laughs) in my head and actually no not just in my head like on the draft episode you thought he was racing arabian people and stuff that's what it said in the national velvet synopsis of the story or something like that because it's rooted in like a shared fictional famous horse and then he goes to the city and i'm like what okay and then it goes to the farmland and i'm like velvet would be furious (laughs) (laughs) we found an article that i sent you by ellen cedar uh the black stallion a boy and his horse this is jump cut 1980 we'll get to this with uh standpoint but standpoint aside literally agrees like the front half of this movie is one thing and the second half of this movie is like a boilerplate racehorse movie it's beautiful and it's shot well and everything and again we'll talk about the excitement component which i think has a lot to do with sound editing and uh music and stuff like that pretty much everyone when you look at the reviews say obviously cinematography blows your mind the sound and music editing is exquisite and that makes it an art movie for kids which was apparently one of the reasons it almost didn't get released according to the imdb trivia they didn't know what to do with it they're like they thought kids movies are supposed to be silly and ridiculous and this movie's not that it should be added to if you look at the time in which this came out this was right in the wake of apocalypse now Mm. which was francis ford coppola's apocalypse in a way like he absolutely devastated his company and his own finances with that movie. Are my methods unsound? I don't see any method at all. 
And it's so this is the point of his career where he is like begging the studios for things. And he doesn't mm-hmm. want to, but he has to. So he's doing work for hire all the time. The mm-hmm. stuff that he had in the can, he had to like beg for funding to finish it. Mm-hmm. So this falls right under that umbrella at that time. I mean, there's even a famous story. Empire Strikes Back was an independent film when it started and then had to get released by Fox because the bank that regularly gave out loans for movies had given out a bunch of money to George Lucas's best friend, Francis Ford Coppola for Apocalypse Now, and they didn't think they were going to see the return. So they didn't put out the money for Empire Strikes Back, which meant he had to come crawling to Fox. So a nice little what if there, like what yeah. if they were better friends and better with their money? <laughs> yeah, there's, he's, and he's a big part of the reason why it made it to the theaters, I guess. So. Yeah, he's not the director. He was the one that that got it going through his company. So it was Carol Bauer. Ballard is the director of this. Right. I don't have a lot else to say here at the top. One of the things that we may not get to later was this kind of emerging theme. Obviously, we're watching a batch on kids movies. This is our first batch of season two. It's our fifth batch overall. And it's our first time with like exclusively kids movies. And we won't see this in the next movie we joked. But with National Velvet, which comes out in like 1940, whatever, and the and this movie, which comes out decades later, we see a very shared story between a kid and the animal where the adults just try to like own and control the animal. A horse that consumes oats must pull his weight in the home. It's a matter of economics, a science of which you know nothing due to your use. But in a way of speaking, it's a matter of decency. Father, he'll bolt! I'll teach him to bolt. Popeye! Whoa! He's worth his salt. Popeye! This movie's very dramatic with the way that the adults are treating the horse at the beginning compared to the way Alec treats him. <laughs> And in one of the most dramatic moments in the movie when Alec is starting to gain and right before he passes them, the jockey in front just whipping his horse and it is mean and Alec is not doing that. And that's very similar to Velvet and talking about how the pie is not a pirate, he's the pie. The adults reject these horses because they don't pull a cart, they don't obey, they don't do what they're supposed to do. The kid has this bond with the horse, like a real bond with the horse. It comes from them humanizing the horse and the reward is the horse does what they want and gives them what they want and becomes the beast of burden that it's supposed to be. The man horse engine we talked about, which is a trope that we may not get to as much as I would like to in this episode. These two movies share that. If ever there was a side-by-side double feature, I know I say this a lot, but National Velvet and The Black stallion are fun not only because they could be sequels but also because um like we don't know where my goes when he whistles down the road maybe this is where he ends up who knows but there's just a lot of shared storytelling and they are they're decades apart and made by very different people in a lot of ways yeah i think in national velvet we have the first horse girl tale on the screen and this is the first horse boy tale on the screen so they're definitely trailblazers the cedar article which you can read jump cut puts its stuff online for free se I-T-E-R, the black stallion, a boy and his horse. She's really good on this in particular in the article. Should we get to the tale of the tape? Absolutely. 
A child named Alec is traveling on a steamboat with his father. He sees a black stallion forced into a room aboard. He sneaks the horse sugar cubes. His father wins a card game and gives him his old knife and a little horse figurine. Alec is told it's Bucephalus, Alexander the Great's horse. The ship burns and sinks at the same time. Alec frees the horse, which leaps over the side. He joins the horse as the ship explodes. This was where it was kind of a Michael Bay thing. <laughs> it was really dramatic. Like, yeah. it is scary. It is dramatic. I always think of an American tale when Fievel gets wrenched away from his family. That scene traumatized me for life, and this is that, but like real and scary and eesh. And there's two moments in here that I think of Steven Spielberg when I watch mm. this, which is also one of Francis Ford Coppola's buddies. So it makes me think he watched this. This feels very Steven Spielberg to me. It really does. Yeah. The ship sinking in Last Crusade and then also when they almost go into the fan blades. That yeah. really reminds me of that. Yep. There it was. I remembered. And then we've talked about the snake in the sand. We'll get to that a little yeah, later. Yeah. Very Raiders of the Lost Ark for sure. We'll just say that. The, the story his dad tells about Bucephalus the, the, the fire in his eyes and the smoke coming out of his nose like he, this dude can tell a story he's got that folksy storytelling voice this story just I remembered almost every beat of it it was weird how once he started I was like oh my god I remember all of this and let's remember he's telling the story of Gremlin so this guy he really right. knows what he's doing <laughs> he's, he's seen some things Alec finds himself on a deserted island he finds the stallion restraints wrapped up in driftwood he cuts it free with his pocket knife Later, a cobra appears face to face with Alec. The horse tramples a snake. Alex is able to win the horse's trust by feeding it, eventually riding it. One day, a fishing ship saves them. Some very long, wordless moments. It's like 12 minutes with no dialogue. Very cast away in that regard and way before this. When you go to watch a horse racing movie, you don't expect a shipwreck. When Charles and I talk about the... Um, Guns of Navarone, we talk about how you don't always need a battle to have excitement. Shipwrecks are plenty exciting, and this movie's showing us a lot of that. Alec becomes famous in his town. He sleeps with his horse in the yard. Maybe that was badly worshipped. You're kind of a pretty horse. <laughs> he sleeps next to his horse in the yard. Let's just, like, watch the sit <laughs> Charles would say, that's a different movie. <laughs> yeah. One night, a man with garbage can scares the horse and it runs off. Alec tracks it back to a barn where Henry Daly, a retired jockey, has captured it. He tells the boy if he cleans out a stall, he can keep it there. Something about Mickey Rooney coming out of the dark. I remembered that as a kid, too. I don't know why, but that was a memory. Henry trains the horse and the boy to be a jockey. He sets up a competition with two of the current champions with a reporter writing about it. Alec's horse gets in a fight with another horse injuring its leg. Despite the wound and Alec trying to stop him, the black stallion wins the race yeah they uh resolve the problem that no one knows this horse so it probably can't race by having this guy call in an old friend who owes him a thing or two and he comes out and watches them run in the rain we're not going to touch on this specifically in excitement but this was dramatic i thought this was neat the way that they're just in the car and everyone's got their watches timing the thing and the article talks a lot about those watches that's pretty cool but they're all like doing that and you just don't even see the horse this kid's just out there in the dark in the rain hanging on 
fine. The bash is called child labor because it's a little weird that this is happening. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> at the same time, as a storytelling moment, it gets around the corners that this isn't a thoroughbred that everyone knows so they can race, but it impresses everybody so much that they get the chance. And then the race day itself is so dramatic. Like the lineup is incredible. We talk about these moments on the big day. It's a lot. He starts so far behind him overtaking him pretty much everything from the moment the, the jockey in front looks back and sees him from that point to the end it's just really dramatic should we get to our thematic yeah what do you have for the thematic i'm curious boy on an island with horse returns to find himself on an island with horse <laughs> seems like once you go to that island you can never leave <laughs> yeah mentally you just never really return that's yeah that's what happens My thematic is pretty straightforward here i just wrote if you bond with the wild you can become a champion like he doesn't really fight nature it's interesting a huge part of the frontier trope is that nature's trying to kill you and we get that on this island yeah, for sure that it's cobra. spades yeah with the cobra with the rocks with the wind with starvation he's got nothing to eat what's he gonna eat well he's eating and, seaweed i assume and right you can and that's do what that. we get that's what we get is that he he's not great at killing fish he can't really do that he tries and doesn't succeed yeah we don't get the five-year cutaway like castaway where all of a sudden he's like spearing <laughs> a fish right like big bushy beard <laughs> he's like 13 <laughs> that would be a very different movie man it's a lot has. of forks in the road here where we're keeping it a kid's movie but the point <laughs> is that initially i had like if you master the wild then you can be a champion but i think it's more about bonding it's definitely bonding with the horse that's a, a strict like fork where if you try to master a horse you're a terrible person and if you bond with the horse it'll give you what you want well and i feel like usually in a desert island movie your protagonist is trying to resolve something right right like that's usually the point when you go on a deserted island is maybe you appreciate things more when you come back that's usually mm -hmm. a big beat but we don't really get that with this he just gets closer to the horse it's almost like he loses his father and then gains this horse. That's fascinating. The footstep scene where the, the kid's running through the sand and we're down low and we're following him. It felt like a old desert movies for sure. But there it is. He's following in the horse's footsteps, right? Like, it's, are you reading this too literally? He's like literally trying to find. Then the horse disappears into the sea where his dad died. Just pulling all these threads and finding conclusions. <laughs> Absolutely. And they have to work together to survive as well. I guess we see yeah. that in these kinds of movies uh one that comes to mind is enemy mine which is a super cheesy sci-fi movie that you would have Neat. all kinds of problems with but it's this lewis gossett jr uh dennis quaid movie don't you understand english toad face i don't love you and you don't love me we're strangers you understand and they're out on this alien planet and they are humanity and this alien and they can't stand each other and they have to learn to work together to survive his suspicion will change to tolerance and they come to love each other tolerance will lead to friendship and then movie still goes which is basically what happens with the black stallion is they're on the island and the kid's afraid of the horse and the horse is afraid of the kid but they learn to trust each other and they bond together
There's so many moments in this movie where it ends with a 12-year-old dead with a broken collarbone in the middle of an island because there's so many moments where this horse could have just kicked him or could have fallen off. I mean, they're dangerous when they're scared. They're powerful animals, obviously. He feeds the horse. He's got that tortoise shell full of kelp. And so, you know, that's part of how they like earn each other's trust. It's like there's a two-way street here. And that's interesting for sure. It's also interesting that he rides the horse without breaking it. I loved this moment. This was one of the two bits that I wanted for excitement was the way that he gets on this horse's back and that transition it's a great note biggs it's he does last week we talked about what it means to break a horse and that's not what's happening here at all he's earning the horse's trust for sure Black Beauty bounds from behind to beat Blue Ribbon Blue Chippers. <laughs> I'm trying to write some of these out now so that I have more interesting things to say, but I am just way behind you on alliteration. <laughs> There's a scene where the guy's following the two horses with the binoculars and he looks way back to find the black. That's me with the alliteration race going on here in the Fields of Glory podcast. <laughs> Can I just say they call the horse the black all the time? I hate yeah. that so much. Yeah. I know it's the black stallion and they call it the black, but it hits my ears so wrong every time I hear it. When you look at any sport at all and the ra- and the racist implications of white supremacy that bakes a lot of these uh, priorities, you're going to find that this is a, a straight cut to anti-blackness to objectifying things and making things go and win and all of this they do call it the mystery horse a few times i wish yes that's what they had said um that doesn't bother me for (laughs) for me the excitement i have a two touch here if that's okay the first one is this notion of the body as power and in particular what's fascinating about this movie is it's not the kid it is very much the horse and i talked last week about how one of the innovations that you read about on the imdb there that this movie made that made it so famous was strapping microphones to the bottom of the horse so that when they're running you can hear them breathing and i had never thought about this but i listened close and you hear them they go like it's so wild to think that all they're doing breathing wise is like one two one two one two one two they are just ripping like they are flying down the sand when they do that because it's four legs pounding along with each of those beats and it's the hooves and it's the breathing and one more note it's the lips grabbing the stuff we get real close on that Like this is a large, powerful animal. And when the second touch is when he gets on its back in the in the water and they emerge from the water and they start running down the sand, it's just so thrilling. It's such like an exhilarating moment. Those are the two for me that, that really stuck out and that's kind of what makes the excitement happen. I was texting you a little bit while I was watching this movie. We're going back and forth and I was talking about how my dog was flipping out while we were watching this movie. My dog (laughs) usually doesn't care what's on the TV. And you immediately texted back, it's the breathing, which I had identified, but I didn't put (laughs) down. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Because that's what I noticed too. When the breathing noises were coming out, it was enough to bother my dog because that was apparently a very realistic sound. In terms of the scale, because we were talking about scale with Nat 
national velvet yeah. and how that four three aspect ratio doesn't really lend to it. I was hoping you'd get back to this. Yeah, I think you can see in spades what I'm talking about in this one, in particular when he's going to get on the horse because you see all of the sand and you see this level of sand on the lower third. And you can see the way it's like been brought in with the waves and everything. And then you see the boy and and the horse in like the middle third and like half of the top third. And then you can kind of see the top of the water. Yeah. You get the scale of how big the ocean is by that because you can see the whole floor. You can see all of that. Like it's so amazing. You could not do that with the box. And just these four little hooves and these two little feet. And it's. Yeah. It really shrinks them, but makes them coherent. I had this thought during the race when we had the profile tracking shots and you just see the ground like flying. And then there's this really beautiful shot right before they take the lead where we're looking at the dirt on the racetrack and you see the horse's shadow and it kind of blends with the sand that we saw earlier and it is just going so fast and i thought of you you're talking about the ratio and how you crush things down to a box and if you look at the race for national velvet it looks like horses running around and jumping around it doesn't look nearly as fast as this movie does with that ratio they clearly either have a camera mounted to the horse but they can't because it, it bounces too much so it's probably on a vehicle to make it look like the horse right but you're following behind these horses but because of the angle they're doing at it you can just have how fast they're going and this movie was really losing me in the second half of as i said but like i was super thrilled seeing that part and all of a sudden i'm like rooting for the kid which i didn't care at that point but all of a sudden i was pulled into it because i'm like that is so fast like that is so fast and you just picture a little kid flying off of that and it's it would be donezo man yeah like if he hit that rail on the side it's all over oh absolutely really fast like again i said i don't know i'm sending a 12 year old to the grand national with a bunch of other horses racing this is safer than that they're not jumping and there's only three horses but no for real horses will kill children and um he's on that horse in a lot of these shots it's amazing like he's not going full tilt racetrack speed i wouldn't imagine but there's no buck and bronco machine that i can find in this movie every shot that we see of him flying especially when he rips off his helmet and things children do not do this i don't care how heroic <laughs> it looks in the movie uh when he rips that thing off and everything like you can see the animal and and it's nuts. He's a horse guy for the rest of his life, apparently. The, the ratio, though, really jumped out at me for sure. There's one more touch here I'll make again later. The music is so smart. It does so little. It really just lets the kind of wave of the crowd just overwhelm at the end. Instead of this huge swell, it's like they did it. It just lets you sit there and it just lets the volume of the crowd take control. And then even that fades away and we see him flapping his arms. That I remembered we did like the karate kid crane kick. That was something we would do as kids. It was very smart. It was so very smart. It just let that kind of moment go silent. And that was with the big peak. It was great. The music was Carmine Coppola. So like this is the guy who scored The Godfather. So he understands how to take a theme and make it work with the scenes. You know, like if you think about the theme that everybody thinks of, like, dun, 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 dun. you hear it so many different ways in that movie and it hits different in every way. This is a guy who absolutely understands scoring. And it just so happens to be, you know, a relative of the producer. But in this case, <laughs> it's OK. 
it was kind of an accident that this person scored it. I have more on this later. <laughs> uh, one other thing with with excitement that I have to get into that cobra standing up to that kid. And I just want to say it's because of the suspense, because you see this cobra, which we have been coded above all other snakes to fear a cobra. Yeah. And it's just sitting there looking face to face with this kid. And they just hold on it for, I don't know, man, 30 seconds, but it feels like an hour. And then all of a sudden it gets trampled by the horse. But that one thing was just so exciting to me. And that is a change in the relationship between the kid and the horse, because at that point, it's all one way, right? Right. Like the kid sneaks at sugar cubes. The kid cuts it free from driftwood. He's trying to bring it like kelp, but like we don't see anything from the horse. And that's when the horse finally pays him back in kind by like, I'm not going to let this cobra snap into your face seven times. It could also be that horses just act like us. They're like, snake, I'm going to take care of this problem right now. I have four solutions and it is hoof, 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 hoof. <laughs> yeah. If there's one thing I've learned from Westerns, it's horses and snakes don't oh, mix. They will delete that snake. And if you are on their back when they see it, hang on tight because they do not care. They teach you this when you learn to ride. Look out. <laughs> yeah. I learned that in Red Dead Redemption too. <laughs> I don't blame them. I don't blame them. I, I mean, all power snakes, they're great animals. They deserve their lives on this earth, but um, no. <laughs> I don't like them. They're part of the food chain, but whatever. Just stay away from me. <laughs> yeah, Team Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> team Hawk. <laughs> Speaking of standpoint. <laughs> Stereotypes hurt horse, sacrifice selves to save white kid. Yeah, I said it's a power fantasy for frightened, gentle, settler white boys everywhere is what we get here. And I did not see that the first time I watched this movie, Biggs. And no. that is why we're here is to learn how this works. Um, this is one I think a lot of people will overlook this stuff and just not notice it. But I think nowadays there's not a grown person on earth who is not going to watch this movie and be like, ooh, <laughs> like even even KKK members are going to be like, this is a little over the top. <laughs> the like, milk on the chin is unforgivable. And this scene is not in the book. This is a filmmaker choice we learned. And dang, if it ain't a bad one. So that was a, a Jewish guy who's in there and he's like doing the thing where he's looking through his spectacles and, and like ogling he's got the money. Just so excited about the big bet. I think it's so cool that you say this, Biggs, because one of the notes that you made about the Ellen Cedar article, The Black Stallion, A Boy and His Horse, Jump Cut, 1980. 1980, this article starts with, this is a mystical, beautiful film. Uh, and then it gets to this critique that I think right now sounds very straightforward. But in 1980, this was not your typical kind of feedback, I don't think, that you would get. Basically, she writes that she became more disturbed by the film stories that went on. The Black Stallion is not just about a horse. Most of the film concerns a white middle-class American boy, his introduction to competition and power, and his ascension to the world of men. In presenting this world of masculine privilege, the Black Stallion resorts to some pretty ugly ethnic and racial stereotyping, and it completely excludes girls and women from everything in which the film valorizes. The Black Stallion's been described by many critics as a mystical film. This mysticism derives not only from the symbolism of the Black Stallion and its association with the wild and the natural, they put extensions in the horse's hair to make it seem wild, uh, the film 
film is also profoundly mystically about male power. It celebrates the magical world of the exclusively male group, the son's inheritance from his father, passing down wisdom and precious objects from one generation to the next, and the unspoken bonds between men, specifically white men, whose destiny it is to win. I have more that I want to read from this article, but we're trying to keep these episodes short. She talks about how the mother mother plays no central role except to say you are a very pretty horse. Uh, The only other girl that speaks is this really weird poem that she's reading about him when he comes back. It's literally a girl too. What, like a fifth grader or something? Right. She's got this great note where she says, the marginality of the mother's role indicates one way that the film presents a fantasy which has strong appeal to children. The fantasy of complete independence. Like, we do not need mom. Mom can go away. Kids love this from Hook to this movie. It's just a really great article that comes out in the 1980s. And since then, there has been so many other intersectional critics. Uh, I have a stencil of masculinity that we're not going to read all the way through. But there's basically 13 nodes that come from multiple sources. And this movie hits 5 out of 13, which is a lot. And it means there's a lot of these stories about what it means to be a man baked in here, even though he's so gentle and so thoughtful. It resists two stories that I think are very important. Don't speak. Don't think. Just act. This is one of the parts of Jackson Katz's notion of toxic masculinity. This film resists this a lot. Alec is very thoughtful and his gentleness, I think, is ultimately what enables him to win over the horse and I think that's pretty cool. It also resists this idea that the body is a source of power. It doesn't really so much resist it. It resists it for Alec's sake. It just displaces it onto the horse. And, right. Yeah. And because he can master the horse, the horse man engine is what lets him access that, but it still resists it within his own personal capacity which i thought was interesting it's like a heroic male sports hero he's got kind of karate kid vibes but he's so different and i do think that's an important lesson that that we have this gentle frightened careful boy can be a champion there's so much more to say on standpoint but that was kind of the big takeaways from the article that i wanted to share you get this long line of Disney movies, let's just call it out. Like Disney did this over and over again, but it it happens in comic books a lot. It happens in a lot of American literature, which is you just immediately take mom and dad off the table. Right. And I was looking at an analysis of that, and they were saying that a big reason why this happened so often was in Great Britain, it was all about your name, right? Like Mm. your name outlives you. You pass on your name. Your name was incredibly important. It denoted your station. It denoted your place in the world. Well, America broke off and suddenly our name, we don't necessarily want to claim that. And it's all about forging a new identity, right? Mm. It's a little bit of that frontiership. Yeah, for sure. And you're, you're trying to, to start something new. And so we see that in this movie, that trope play out where you take dad off the table by killing him and then you marginalize mom. Right. The problem with this in particular for this story is that it's not like mom was killed or something. She just doesn't do anything. Like she's almost helpless. She's a mother. She's an afterthought to like could really be dangerous. And then they bring her in for the token. I guess you can do it. You know, after he's been doing this the whole time. He says so little. And she's like, I guess you can do it. It is such a classic moment. (laughs) And so if you're going to tell that frontiersmanship story, I mean, that's just a terrible way to do it because you're just reducing the mother to nothing. And I think in that article, 
it talked about how they reduced her in the same way they reduced the women in The Godfather, which yep. I've been on record on this show saying I love The Godfather, but its portrayal of women are really terrible. They're very quiet women. They have to be behind a shut door. They get no agency. They spend a lot of time watching and being victims of the decisions other people make and things like this. And I would say like in part two and three, we see a different portrayal of that. But in the first one, that's exactly what they are, is they're just a mother. They're a wife. They're yeah. off to the side. They're quiet. Right. And this is no different. I just love this. This note that, you know, everyone's like, everything's so woke nowadays, boo-hoo. But it's like, no, this was always something that people were aware of. It has just been mainstreamed so hard in the last 10 to 15 years that young people do not know the history they've inherited. It took a lot of exhausting work for, you know, folks to go through these movies and, and detail these lessons. And once you learn a few of them, you can see them across so many titles. And one of the big takeaways is that cinema really wants to make you an independent and wants you to make a loner. It wants to be make a hero or a villain. You're one or the other. It's just a terrible way to learn about bonding and socializing. It sets all the wrong stories for families, for sure. And I hate that this in particular comes at the expense of the mom, because of course it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one other thing before we leave standpoint that has to be noted. I believe we have our first magical Negro trope. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I ask you, what does Muse do? And he's not right. If he, he says that you shouldn't race the horse because he's too wild. So he's a doubter. And if there were some truth to that, I think there'd be like a magical lesson. Does he teach him a magical lesson? He's just kind of a useless voice of warning. He is dressed as if he's from the past right. when he shows up in the For thing. For sure. No, he's definitely got a lot of the characteristics. He just happens to know where the horse is. Right. He has a horse from National Lampoons. His horse was from Animal House, apparently. So that horse is a star. This is the number one key to the magical Negro trope because people get hung up on the magical part too much. Right. But it's not just the magical part. You can throw it away in a lot of examples. The key to it is black person is interested in white protagonist for no good reason. Yeah. Doesn't care about anything but that kid. Whenever you have this black person who could care less about anything else in the world, about his place in the world because he's concerned about this white guy at the center of frame, that is the magical Negro trope right there. I think it is a, a close match. I mean, I, I'll concede a lot of what you just said. I don't know that we get him dropping everything to help the boy. I think he does help the boy and he does show up a couple of times to tell the boy stuff, but he's just only in that frame for the boy. You know what I mean? The only place that I'll push back is like, if you look at like the, the, be the beggar Vance dude or whatever, like some of these other places that you see it, there's, there's like a little bit of like luck. There's a little tip of advice. There's like a magical kind of wink or charm, or I believe in you and this guy doesn't he literally says he should not race and then he races and the guy is wrong and for and that's not to say this isn't it is he wrong because he's trying to stop the horse the entire time he says that the horse is too wild to race and he basically wins the race on that horse so <laughs> he's telling the kid to not race the horse and when the kid tries to stop the horse from racing it wins right so in other words because he's not trying to race the horse right the horse takes over and finishes it's a little bit of home spun wisdom Aaron. no i again i think to me this it did like either way it's hitting most of the characteristics and fulfilling the narrative in ways that are worth mentioning and so here we are but really to me the fundamental part about the relationship that he's there in, in servants and in deference to the white male protagonist that's clear he's not really doing anything else in this movie that much is very clear yeah but there's usually some kind of, of advice or word of wisdom or even frequently some kind of sacrifice that they're going to make that enables the person to do the thing i think very much that it's like this horse is too wild to race it ends up in my view being very much the opposite 
that if you can bond with that wildness, you can race. If everyone else were telling him the one thing and he were to be the one saying you can do it, then that to me would be the full bingo. Instead, we just get half of the trope in my mind, which is plenty bad. (laughs) (laughs) We're really cutting hairs here. And you know what you get when you cut hairs, Biggs? Hairy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go to the judges on that trope. But meanwhile, we'll continue with Fields of Glory after a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, kiddo, I lost my library of sound, so I need you to do some sound effects for me. I don't want to do this, Dad. Look, I'm just trying to put food on the table, but if you don't want to help... All right. Hear Big's Chronicle, a galaxy of genres. Listen to the deconstruction of film on A Cosmic Void. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you have a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement, training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast, Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones and the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. You can find all of Redwood Sound Lab shows at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. MVP, Aaron, who you got? Oh, man, Biggs, I would just go all day if I could about the sound department on this. I think that whoever's doing the editing of sound, whoever's doing the recording of sound, I know there's a lot of things coming together here, but the the, the sounds of the horse, the little tiny moments, there's little moments where the fire crackles and the waves break and the water trickles. The sound is what makes a lot of like the cinematography's work in magic. And my guess is this is going to be a popular choice is that choice. But I think the sound is doing double duty here that is overlooked a lot. And the cinematography ends after the first half and the sound is kicking butt all the way through this movie. Um, I'll talk a little bit more. I said about like how, the way that the music works here. But for me, that's it. I hate to argue that because I instruct people on recording audio, but Caleb Deschanel, you're my MVP. Dude, just the pictures are so beautiful. We already really touched on this, so I don't feel like I have to belabor the point, but there's just so many beautiful scenes and the desert island is the best stuff. But when the kid's walking down on the beach for the first time and you just see the the composition of the rocks behind him, it's just amazing. You shouldn't look at a pile of rocks and be like, wow, that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Like, that is an MVP performance as far as I'm concerned. It's well, well backed. A bunch of people feel the same way. There is a cool featurette where he talks about how because this is 1979, there's just not a lot of post-production in this capacity. Like what you're looking at is shots they took on film. They just went and did it and had a day. And the scenes with the horse going back and forth, there's some long takes. Like they're obviously the one with the sparkling water in the background and the little tiny leaf and the big chompy lips. That's something else is the most iconic image of this movie. Yeah. It's it's all over the place is the silhouette of the boy on the horse in the beach. And that is an image they caught in the movie. That's not for the poster. Like that was something they took directly from the movie. It's really incredible to be able to play with shadow that way. One 
more tip I'll make is when they're racing at the end, the, the way that the race is shot, there's all these moments where we're directly behind and he's like floating. He's just floating on the back of this horse the very same way Mickey Rooney told him to. The way that the shot cuts from behind him to the side to the front, like they're shooting all these different angles and he's really moving. It looks like it's it's incredible. Six man award. The six man award for me has to be Carmine Coppola. I don't want to do too many drops here, but the soundtrack is not one you'll just put in and have a bunch of bangers. It's not like Last of the Mohicans where you put it on and everything's like, yeah, this one is so subtle. Mysticism is done really well. Arabic fetishism is done really well. Um, (laughs) The music, like when he's making a fire... I have what I call the horse drums, which are just the drums of the horse while it's running around on the beach. I have um, what I call the water piano. This is the jazz ballet that we get while they're underwater. halfway through when they emerge it it becomes this like heroic swell that is just so beautiful And then the very last note I want to make on this is where we have this winning moment after the end. It's way after they win. It's when Alec finally gets his hero horn. It sounds so much like Apollo 13 to me. It's really weird. It's so heroic, but they do so little with the sound. They don't give us the big splash when the winning moment happens. There's so much silence in this movie that they could put little tiny sound over. But the moment that he overtakes and wins, it's just this swell. There's this little swell that comes up and then it goes away completely. And it's just so brilliant. It's such a great move. What do you got for the six man? Or what's your take on that? (laughs) 
the horse figurine. It's Bucephalus. It either bonded with the kid and the horse to survive and win races or caused a shipwreck that killed his dad. Either way, I don't want to get on that Monopoly piece's bad side. <laughs> yeah, Biggs, but don't you kind of want one? I always definitely wanted one, and I love this choice because I hope she doesn't mind me saying it. My sister got a tattoo of it, and it's on her ankle, and it looks amazing, and it made me think like that. I want that <laughs> This movie fixates on that thing. <laughs> My dad lives on a boat right now, and yeah. I don't like snakes. So, <laughs> I mean, listen, nope. those two marks against right there. But um, what a magical friend, Biggs. What a, the, if you don't like snakes, get this horse. It'll come kill all the snakes in your life. <laughs> I don't like horses either. <laughs> Just they those are big doll eyes staring at me. <laughs> yeah, everyone likes the idea of horses, I say. But once you start owning them, you realize it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it sounds cool when you're like, oh, it's this car I can be friends with and then you realize like it's a car that goes when it feels like it and it eats a lot <laughs> yep it poops a lot and it eats a lot and it kicks things sometimes and uh has moods <laughs> The Billy Zapka Most Outstanding Villain Award. For me, it's got to be animal cruelty. It has to be animal cruelty because this movie is a great example of how we can turn what I think to be the appropriation of another being's life into sheer spectacle. And dang, if I don't love this movie, but I said it last week, I'll say it this week. Horse racing is cruelty and it has to stop. It has to stop. What do you think, Biggs? I think you're probably right, but I always like to pick out an individual. So I know it's good that we have two people giving the award out. We can really really cover our bases this way yeah so man lugging a garbage can on his back seriously dude it's nighttime you're banging around garbage cans in the middle of the night plus did you ever once consider there might be a horse in the yard i bet you will now no <laughs> that guy saw the horse take off he's like there was a horse over there <laughs> Which leads us to Black Monday. Yeah, right. Here we go. Is, is, is Mike keeping his job this time or not? Let's find out. Mickey Rooney. So we meet again 38 <laughs> years later. You actually had good advice this time. You seem to actually know how horses work and how to ride them. You saw a winner and you went with your gut and it paid off. Oh, don't leave my office just yet. Once you let a child race a horse, and once again, you didn't inform the mom. Terry Gar had to figure it out on her own. We have a pattern of child neglect here, and we've already contacted the authorities. Where do you think you're going? Oh, I think you'll find the door quite locked. Yeah, when a man like Mickey Rooney tells you that you have to keep a secret from your mom. You know, Alec, secrecy. That's the key word. Don't just say, okay. I mean, know what I'm talking about. It's a secret. You and me, we have a secret. It's time for you to tell your parents absolutely everything. That's <laughs> the takeaway from this lesson right here. Um, we said it last week. We'll say it again. You got a tune to whistle? Good. Kick those feet and whistle that tune and right on down the road. We're firing you for the second week in a row. I think we've discovered it's not enough, man. He's just going to whistle his way to another little kid. <laughs> like put him on a horse. And endanger Something their must life. be done to stop this man. The ghost of Mickey Rooney is out there torturing kids on a horses he does so such a good job for his role in this movie like he, he does is he's so much better perfect. he's so insufferable in national velvet and <laughs> i is. actually really like him in this movie i do i said he was perfect for his job in national velvet he was so over the top in national velvet i do think he was insufferable in national velvet um and this one he's much more tolerable he gives him actual advice like he's literally he's not take a look over at the, the training that uh that velvet gets and what alec gets he's given him totally 
different lessons. And I yeah. wish Velvet got more like how to ride the horse kind of stuff going on. But no, it's yeah. it's interesting. I mean, it had to have been stunt casting, right? It had to have been when they put yeah. him into that role because he's still in that advisor role. But in this one, he's the old wizened guy who's actually like, no, I actually understand how this works and I want to help you out. I just wish he had talked to mom first before even bringing it up to Alec. Again, like if you want to enter a 12 year old in the ping pong grand national, knock yourself out, but do not put a kid on a horse like that. I like kids will ride, kids will race, kids will jump. This My sister did some of this stuff, but just scary. Okay. Let's say he goes and tells mom mm. or we just have an understanding that mom knows. Does it change anything in the movie? You just lose the moment where she's the obstacle. Yeah, there's not even like a plot point to it. No. It's just there. It's just a trope. All they get is the moment. I guess you can do it. That's what they get. If you're so if you're so committed, then I guess you can do it. That's about it. <sighs> it's just like you can have him bring it up to the mom and her really, really think about it and then decide, okay, I'm going to let you. And they could have made that a moment. But no, it serves nothing, dude. It's like a 45 second conversation that's resolved immediately. And you could say a lot of things about the standpoint in National Velvet, but it is absolutely worth remembering that the mom in National Velvet was the first woman to swim the English Channel. And rather than being like, oh, I guess you can do it. She's like one of the only people that believes in her. And she's literally the one providing the money for her to do it and the words of wisdom for her to do it and the encouragement. And her dad's like, no. And mom's like, yes. And so far as the family structures that we've seen that movie which came out in the 40s is making some pretty decent choices there of course the mom is also the same person to say as soon as you've won you should give it up which is definitely not the takeaway that we want for women in sports but as far as her role she's i said last week she's much more present and much more involved than i expected her to be and i think this movie is a good example of why i would go in with that expectation it's decades later and mom does nothing since we're at the the back end of this i have to ask you a quick question have you seen the cinematic classic crocodile dundee not in a long time, but yes, I do know that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> Did it kind of feel like when the stallion was in the city that he was kind of like Crocodile Dundee, just like, <laughs> oh, I don't belong here. Well, it made me think of when the horse bolted in National Velvet and Velvet went after it, but we didn't follow it. And yeah, as far as fish out of water stories go, horse in the city is a good one. <laughs> like It's a really good one. I mean, you want to make a villain out of that guy, but he gave us a great sequence of shots there by Spook and Hours. Yeah, absolutely. Man, like I said, we could have made this a three-hour episode. There's so much to say. Everyone agrees this movie is mystical. And the only other note that I would say is whenever you hear mysticism and mystical adjectives and, and explanations, you need to think hard about the history here. This is just kind of wrapped in that Arabic fetish. It's got like Arab representative people like, you know, kidnapping a horse and taking it away and looking at the kid and threatening him and eating the sugar cube like a simpleton and just doing all these really really gross stuff and when you listen to the kind of mystical moments in the soundtrack it's someone who's not of a history using instruments to tell a story that he doesn't know anything about and I know it's easy to love it sounds incredible it tastes delicious we say but that mysticism vocabulary when you hear that it's time to get critical that's my big takeaway thank you for listening the show is research written hosted and produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small check out my letterbox account under Alex Big Small or Aaron under AP Donaldson. Next week, we conclude our block on child labor with the Mighty Ducks. But coming up next, Les Nesman and Johnny Fever get stuck in an elevator and have to deliver a contest winner's baby. But will they be able to get back on the air before it's time for news and weather? <laughs> Connie Francis guest stars on WKRP. Coming up next. Ducks.
Ducks, 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 ducks.